York City. It's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Always a pleasure to be able to share an empowering hour with you, and this will be just that hour. We begin always with the latest on health and healing, and this is from the Justice Liebig University in Germany, and it's about an herb. The herb is Echinacea, E-C-H-I-N-A-C-E-A. Very popular back in the 1970s. In fact, Astragalus and Echinacea were the two herbs for people to keep their immune system strong. All right, well now a very large trial supports echinacea's immune benefits. And when they combine echinacea and the root and extract and the elderberry, they found it's very effective. In fact, it was as effective as Tamiflu, the antiviral medicine for the early treatment of flu. Well, that's a big deal because Tamiflu has side effects. This does not. So, the data from 473 patients exhibiting flu symptoms for less than 48 hours indicated that echinacea uh, was approximately equal in the therapeutic benefits. So that's a big deal. All right. Um, by the way, this was not just one study. It was the Czech Republic, Germany, Switzerland, the United Kingdom all participated in this. And they all found the same thing. It works. So... Another way to stay healthy, especially in flu and cold season. Echinacea and elderberry. And you can get the elderberry as a concentrate. So one teaspoon of elderberry and then 200, 250 milligrams of echinacea. The echinacea comes from the purple flower. It's one of the most recognizable herb products out there. And there was a meta-analysis that was published in the Lancet Infectious Disease Journal conclude that echinacea may cut the risk of catching the common cold by 60%. How about that? In fact, University of Connecticut uh, researchers combined the results of 14 different studies, all showing positive effects. In one of the studies, they found that, it, that echinacea, taken in combination with vitamin C, reduced the cold incidence by 86%. Wow. And when the herb was used alone, the instance was 65%. So echinacea, vitamin C, together is a ticket. And that's important. All right, and then uh, elderberry too. Now from the National Academy of Medical Sciences, rhodiola, R-H-O-D-I-O-L-A, is found to be an effective herbal medicine for treating fatigue and weakness. Fatigue, we also, from different times, overwork, stress, uh, overexercising causes fatigue. And of course, that doesn't include disease, which also can cause fatigue. Well, fatigue is a condition characterized by extreme feelings of either physical or mental tiredness. And a new study shows that rhodiola, is called rhodiola rosea, R-O-S-E-A, can be used as an herbal medicine for fatigue. P. 
People who are experiencing fatigue can have symptoms like sore muscles, lack of motivation, headaches, drowsiness, irritability. If fatigue lasts for more than six months, it can be classified as prolonged fatigue. And like chronic fatigue syndrome is just one of those. Uh, getting uh, bitten by a tick that carries the specific parasite can also cause that as well, Lyme's disease. So a study published in Complementary Medicine Research showed that rhodiola is really good for those suffering from prolonged chronic fatigue. You know, just Emory University, Harvard University, finds that air pollution exposure impacted puberty of U.S. girls. A newly published study from Memory and Harvard found a a connection between childhood exposure to air pollution and the age at which U.S. girls experienced their first periods. This was published in Environmental Health Perspectives on 5,200 girls across the United States, all of whom were children of participants in the Nurses' Health Study. So, one more reason. And this is, this is going to be challenging for some people to understand that once you are in an area with air pollution, that's really going to increase your risk of disease, mainly cardiovascular disease, lung disease, type 2 diabetes, and certain types of cancer. So the idea is, why not move? If you can, not everyone can, not everyone has the means to. But there's no reason to be in polluted cities around industrial pollution. I'm down here in Southwest Florida on my animal sanctuary where I've been for 28 years. And I, of course, that whole time I also had an apartment in the city I don't anymore. One of the very first things you notice when you get off a plane here is how clean the air is. Just going for a walk this morning in the pastures, it was so invigorating, especially at sunrise, And uh, because they don't allow pollution down here. That's why a lot of people like it. The weather is good 12 months a year, and the people are nice. Now, of course, I don't live on the beach. That's a choice that I didn't. I chose not to live where there's a hurricane, a potential of destroying my home. I'm way back in the boondocks here. I'm off the beach. But, uh, and just having all this green, the chlorophyll. And by the way, you can bring plants into your house or office that also can enhance quality of the air you breathe and it traps carbon dioxide. Just suggesting. Now, another study from Brigham and Women's Hospital showed that researchers discover association among post-traumatic stress disorder, your diet, and your gut microbiome. And that's important. This was done at um, Massachusetts General uh, Brigham and Harvard. Chan School of Public Health. And what they found is if you have a bad diet, if you don't have good health, healthy bacteria, you're going to have no change in your post-traumatic stress disorder. But if you increase the good bacteria in your gut, and if you change to a healthier plant-based diet, like the Mediterranean diet, it's not a 100% uh, plant-based, but it's healthy, then that can decrease the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's an association, once again, between the gut microbiome and the brain. And that study showed it. All right? So clean up your diet if you're having these symptoms 
or if you know someone who is, get them on a good cleanse detoxification, and frequently those symptoms are substantially reduced. Get them off sugar, caffeine, meat, and processed carbohydrates. From the University of Wisconsin, strength training may reduce health risks of a high-protein diet. High-protein diets are not healthy, and for three reasons. One, because your body can't store protein. As a result, what you don't need in that moment, your body has to go through a chemical process called deaminization of breaking it down. That creates byproducts, urea and ammonium, and that's toxic to the liver and kidneys. Two, because we're eating far more protein than what we need, even vegans do. And you only need, I'm giving you an average now, it's nine nine tenths of gram per kilogram per body weight a day. Um, And that generally comes out to somewhere around 45 to 65 grams. Now there are exceptions that make it more and or some less, but that's pretty good. So let's just say 20 grams per meal. That's one scoop of a vegetable-based protein powder in the morning. And that's, uh, you know, rice and beans and starchy vegetables. That's a handful of nuts. So you eat these throughout the day. You don't over uh, overstimulate the byproduct of excessive protein. And lastly, we get almost all of our protein from animals. My own original research done at the Institute of Applied Biology showed that we never had to have any animal protein to get all the amino acids, which are the building blocks of our body, from any animal source. We can do it safely and environmentally positive because now you don't have to grow the animals, creating all that byproduct pollution from methane and then destroying the animals. So all that's to the best not to do that. So anyhow, um, progressive strength training using resistance can protect against the detrimental effects of a high-protein diet. This was published in Review, Reprint, and Elite. So just suggesting. So how about the bodybuilders out there? And, uh, and there's been this myth, a big myth, that uh, you have to have animal protein, a lot of it, in order to get your body mass and muscles and strength. Well, I'm a vegan, and I've been a vegan. Uh, There was a time when I was a vegetarian, but that was a long time ago. Go back and go up on GaryNoll.com and look under uh, the lifetime achievements. Look under the athletic one, all right? Because there, I took photographs just to see for myself how I was aging every decade. And you'll see thousands of people in these photographs of the running club in Central Park and races, New York Marathon, indoor championships, outdoor championships, the World Games. But you'll see a group of people who want to be elite athletes, just normal people, normal athletes. They were not winners of anything. But once they trained for a year, they became national champion athletes. All of them. Luan Panisi, for example, uh, when I was just down in uh, Texas doing a retreat, health retreat, about a month ago, I went into her office. 
and she has on the wall some, but not all of her awards, including the World Games and the Metropolitan Athletic Congress, uh, Master Track and Field Athlete Woman of the Year in race walking. She had 154 medals. I counted them. And uh, she says, well, there's more at home. She was not a, a top athlete. She was a, by the way, she was a nationally ranked gold medal uh, person performing in skating, figure skating. Now, I guess that figure skating and the strength you need in your balance and your legs that helped her when she became a runner. In fact, she didn't know she was going to the New York City Marathon till we handed her a number. <laughs> she had never done long training. And she finished it and did well. But we don't overemphasize the protein in any of this. And we do emphasize just strength training, exercising on a regular basis, having the right amount of protein in our body. Anyhow, you'll see photographs. And you'll see me in several different poses. And because uh, I just want to see, and I have it for every year since I was 18, right up till now, you can see it. And how in the world did I get that much cut muscle eating vegetables? And so other people became vegan based upon saying, wow, I don't need to eat all this meat and be constipated and toxic. No, you do not. All right? So go to there and see that. You'll see all these video bios on the side that uh, you might see yourself in. And finally, from Rutgers University, adults with ADHD are at an increased risk for developing dementia. And uh, that means, I believe it's overdiagnosed. I believe it's massively overdiagnosed in children. And, uh, and I took a group of adults and children, and I put them on a three-month protocol, getting rid of all caffeine, sugar, uh, bad diets, and 90-plus percent of all their hyperactivity, their hyperkinetic their distraction, all this agitation, fidgeting, gone. But if you do have legitimate ADHD, you're 300% more likely to develop dementia than adults without it. So this was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open. So if you do have it or your child has it, get into the hands of a competent, qualified, licensed, certified person who can help take you through a detoxification and rejuvenation program. It can help. That's it on health and nutrition. We're going to take a break and come right back. Please stay with us. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like grief in your fingertips You're trying hard not to show it But baby Ukrainian, um, 
all the citizens of Israel, no matter what their background, aren't we mature enough, wise enough, resourceful enough to find solutions to these problems? And the answer is yes. We've had solutions for a long time. But there are certain people, and ideological people, who don't want peace. And that's unfortunate. But here in the United States, when I watch uh, some of the talk shows, I see extreme bias in who they bring on. People who want war, who profit from war. And uh, they're happy when we're fighting. Well, they made money off Vietnam, they made money off Afghanistan, they made money off Libya, they made money off Yugoslavia, and uh, Ukraine, Ethiopia, uh, everyone makes money in that industry. But that doesn't make peace. So I want to give you a history, the true history, of where this problem really started. Because for hundreds of years, Jew and Arab and Christian lived together and lived in peace. People would like to deny that history, but we have the history. I'm going to show you a clip now that is about the British rule in what we now call Israel, Palestine, at that time, from 1917 to 1947-48, when they finally left. And I've mentioned Balfour De Declaration and uh, where at, in World War I, the British were not doing well, and they were fighting the Ottoman Empire, which had been there for hundreds of years, and controlled what is now Iraq and Syria and uh, Jordan and Palestine. And they said to the Jewish population, and to also to the Zionist population that wanted a, a state for itself of Israel, help us and we'll give you we'll give you Palestine. Then they turned around and gave this same offer to the Arabs. Help us beat the Ottoman. And they did that with Lawrence. And we'll give you your own state, Palestine. They offered the same promise to two different groups of people. Well, they both helped. And it caused the war to come to an end in its own way. Major battles were in Europe. Trouble is... Then they expected these people to get along, and when you offer the same reward to two different people, there's going to be conflict. And in 1947-48, that conflict exploded. But by that time, England was out of there. And that's where we start our story. I want you to hear an honest, objective, nonpartisan view of history that gives you an understanding of what's happened since that time till now. We'll go to the clip. Between 1917 and 1948, Britain controlled the area of the Middle East, then known as Palestine. This chapter of history was to have a profound effect on both Arabs and Jews. Yet most British people know little about it. This film is a simple outline of a very complex story. So what took Britain to Palestine in the first place? 
For centuries, the region had been ruled by the Ottoman Turks. But when the First World War broke out in 1914, the Turks allied with Britain's enemies, Germany, and the other Central Powers. Palestine and the Middle East were regarded as highly strategic to the British Empire because of oil, and also because the Suez Canal controlled the sea route to India. The Middle East was now under the control of Britain's enemies, so Britain considered it vital to defeat the Turks and gain control for the Allies. In 1917, General Allenby and his troops advanced across southern Palestine. And in December, they captured Jerusalem. By the following year, all of Palestine had come under British control. Her troops were to remain there for the next 30 years. As the First World War came to an end, Britain and France issued a proclamation promising that former subjects of the Ottoman Empire would be able to determine their own futures. Briefly, freedom was in the air. However, a different reality lay behind the words. Long before the end of the war, the Allies had been planning who would control the Ottoman Empire when the Turks were defeated. These conflicting plans are often referred to as the contradictory promises. Firstly, in October 1915, Sir Henry McMahon, British High Commissioner in Egypt, had promised the Arabs in the person of Sheriff Hussein of Mecca that they could have an independent Arab state after the war if they would rise up against their overlords, the Turks. Believing that they were fighting for their freedom, some Arabs joined the Allied war effort and, assisted by Lawrence of Arabia, helped the Allies drive the Turks from their lands. However, for the last hundred years, there has been controversy over how McMahon's letter to Hussein should be interpreted. Did he implicitly include Palestine in the proposed independent Arab state, or did he not? Many Arabs and senior British figures have consistently maintained that Palestine was included, while British governments since 1920 have argued that it was excluded. But meanwhile, Britain had become party to two further wartime agreements, both of which seemed to contradict the undertaking to Hussein. In 1916, the secret Sykes-Picot agreement between Britain and France allocated what is now Syria and Lebanon to France and what is now Jordan and Iraq to Britain, whilst proposing to keep Palestine under international control. Then, a year later, Britain made yet another undertaking concerning Palestine. In November 1917, the British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour wrote to Lord Rothschild, a leader of the Jewish community. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine, or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews 
in any other country. This promise became known as the Balfour Declaration. The idea that the Jewish people should be restored to the Holy Land so that biblical prophecies could be fulfilled had been promoted by some Christians since the 1600s. Then, from the 1890s, the idea of Zionism began to take hold amongst some Jews, as Theodor Herzl argued that the Jewish people needed a political homeland of their own if they were to escape the horrific anti-Semitic persecution that was rife, particularly in Russia and Central Europe. By the early 1900s, Herzl's successor, Heim Weizmann, saw Britain as the power with the global influence to make the Zionist goal a reality. So he set out to convince leading politicians that the Jewish people needed a homeland in Palestine, where they had deep spiritual and historical bonds. The Balfour Declaration was the result. Why did the war cabinet respond to Zionist pressure in this way? Foreign Secretary Balfour was one of the highly placed Christians in British society who believed that the Jewish people should be restored to the Holy Land. Prime Minister Lloyd George, who also came from a restorationist background, dreamt of putting Israel back on the map. Yet, at the same time, there were strategic calculations for issuing the Balfour Declaration. At this desperate point in the European conflict, the war cabinet hoped that the promise of a Jewish homeland would win the Allies the sympathies of Jews and their supporters worldwide. However, the British government did not consult the people then living in Palestine about its plans to create a Jewish homeland there. 90% of the population of Palestine were Arabs who lived together with a small Jewish community. Palestine had been predominantly Arab in culture and language for many centuries. Yet, in private, Balfour wrote, In Palestine, we do not propose even to go to the form of consulting the wishes of the present inhabitants. The major powers were now committed to Zionism, which he described as being of far profounder import than the desires of the Arab inhabitants. The Balfour Declaration simply stated that the civil and religious rights of the non-Jewish population should not be prejudiced. So when the war came to an end, how would all these complex undertakings work out in practice? As the Western powers met in Paris to negotiate the peace settlement, Sharif Hussein sent his son, Faisal, to make sure Britain's promise of independence for the Arabs was not forgotten. But instead, the newly formed League of Nations handed control of Palestine to Britain. Under the terms of the League of Nations' mandate for Palestine, Britain was required to implement the Balfour Declaration by supporting the creation of a Jewish national home, and at the same time, to prepare the people of Palestine for eventual self-government. The League of Nations stated that mandatory powers held a sacred trust to ensure the well-being and development of people in their care. 
What happened to the other areas that Sheriff Hussein anticipated would gain independence? Transjordan, now Jordan, was made an autonomous emirate under Hussein's son, Abdullah. In the same way, the new kingdom of Iraq was given to his brother, Faisal. These were the rewards Hussein received for his loyalty to the British war effort, but they did not include Syria or Palestine. Angry Arab crowds soon massed in Jerusalem, denouncing the Balfour Declaration and demanding the self-determination that had been promised by Britain and France in 1918. Having made conflicting promises, Britain now had to face up to their consequences. She had created a contradiction. Just how unworkable this situation was, it took her 30 years to accept. Both communities, Jews and Arabs, believed they had been promised the land. As the Zionists swiftly began to implement their objectives, the Arabs were the first to conclude they had been deceived. Riots broke out in 1920. In 1921, there was even greater violence as Arabs attacked Jews and the British tried to regain order. After a period of relative calm, mutual suspicion between the Arab and Jewish communities flared up again in 1929 and rapidly escalated into mob violence with horrific consequences. 133 Jews and 116 Arabs were killed. Britain's response was slow and inadequate. Calm was finally restored by a show of British force. Meanwhile, the Jewish community was forging ahead under the umbrella of the British mandate, securing major economic concessions and establishing its own elected assembly and institutions of government. The Arab majority, on the other hand, felt left behind economically and politically. To be granted democratic representation, they were effectively required to accept the Balfour Declaration. But the Arabs rejected this, fearing that a Jewish national home would lead to the creation of a Jewish state in their land. For their part, the British feared that an elected Arab majority would oppose Jewish demands for land and immigration. And so they held back the democratic progress they were supposed to foster under the mandate. Britain was upholding the first part of the declaration to establish a home for the Jewish people. But the second undertaking in the declaration, to protect the rights of the Arab population, proved to be hollow. Arab alarm grew still further in the 1930s when increasing numbers of Jews sought sanctuary in Palestine as the spectre of anti-Semitism grew in Nazi Germany. As more and more land passed into Jewish hands, the sense of Arab dispossession grew. By May 1936, Palestine was in open rebellion and it was not just Jewish communities who were being attacked, it was the British too. Increasingly losing control, 
the British authorities resorted to ruthless methods to put down the revolt, including hangings, house demolitions, and the use of civilians as human shields. For a period, British and Jewish men fought the Arabs jointly in a counter-insurgency force known as the Special Night Squads. By 1939, the rebellion was suppressed, leaving the Palestinian leadership weakened for years to come. To try to address the underlying deadlock between Arabs and Jews, London had responded with a succession of inquiries and commissions through the 1930s. Their dilemma was that any attempt to placate one community would provoke the anger of the other. At a loss for a solution, the Peel Commission of 1937 proposed to partition Jews and Arabs into two states. But Arab opinion, led by the vehemently anti-Zionist Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, denounced any idea of conceding territory to Jews as unthinkable. However, as Europe slid towards war, the British government changed course. The government white paper of 1939 abandoned partition and proposed that in 10 years, Palestine would become independent, representatively governed by Arabs and Jews. Controls were now put in place over how many Jews could immigrate to Palestine and how much land could pass into Jewish hands. For the first time, Arabs were to be given a say over Jewish immigration. The reason Neville Chamberlain's government swung in favor of Arab opinion at this point was the prospect of war. London feared that in a global conflict, the Arab world might turn against Britain whilst the support of Jews would be guaranteed in view of their persecution by the Nazis. Jewish opinion immediately condemned the White Paper as an act of British betrayal and a retreat from the Balfour Declaration. There was fury that Jewish people would be restricted from finding sanctuary at their hour of greatest need. Nevertheless, Britain upheld the limits on Jewish immigration into Palestine right through the war. As refugees fleeing the Holocaust were arrested trying to enter Palestine, or were even sent back to Germany, as in the case of the Exodus, the Jewish community turned against Britain and the mandate. Sections of Jewish opinion became increasingly militant and violent and Britain suffered heavy losses from terrorist atrocities. In February 1947, Foreign Secretary Ernest Bevin stated that Britain was referring responsibility for the Palestinian problem to the United Nations. By September, as the situation continued to worsen, Britain announced that she would terminate her mandate for Palestine in May 1948. The UN solution to the Palestine problem was partition, but this was again rejected by the Arabs. As British forces beat an ungainly retreat and the mandate came to an end, 
partition was abandoned, leaving Jews and Arabs to an undeclared war for domination. On the 14th of May, 1948, Israel declared itself a state and was immediately recognized by America. The events of this time are known to some as the War of Independence and to others as the Nakba or the Catastrophe when about 60% of the Palestinian population became refugees as they fled or were expelled. Today's conflict between Israelis and Palestinians had begun. Britain's direct involvement in Palestine ended in 1948. But how should British people today respond to the story of Britain in Palestine? I want you to hear from a former Prime Minister of Israel and his concern, a little difficult to understand everything he's saying, but his concern is that the people in power, Netanyahu and his cabinet, are radical right. I mean, these people, by any measure, would be considered so far right, they're fascist. And they control the body politic. They control the media. That does not mean that all Israelis support their policies. To the contrary, a lot don't. So here's what he has to say. So when the former leader of Israel tells you that the problem cannot be solved until these people are replaced with people who are moderate and who want to have an end to the conflict where everyone has a chance to live in peace. And that also means when you finally come to giving freedom to the Israeli, uh, to the Palestinian people, do you really think they're going to want to support Hamas? Most don't like Hamas. Feel Hamas has caused all these problems by being so violent. It's reprehensible what Hamas has done, but it's also reprehensible what is happening now and what has happened historically that no one talks about because no one pays attention to it. We will. So let's, let's hear what he has to say. Benjamin Netanyahu leads a government whose members support the pogroms which was committed against the Palestinian township. The ministers in the cabinet of Netanyahu support the suppression of Palestinians and the denial of fundamental human rights to these people. The Minister of National Security in this government is a person who was convicted uh, in the Israeli court for terrorism against Palestinians. This is a government which is a shame to the basic values of the people of Israel and the Jewish people. Well, I expressly call upon the Prime Minister of Great Britain to cancel the visit of the Israeli Prime Minister next week in London and to avoid meeting him because it will be a shame for the basic principles of Great Britain to be associated with what Netanyahu represents today. And finally, of all the people speaking out who do podcasts and who have expertise on war, conflict, one, Scott Ritter, has been accurate so often on understanding the conflicts. Remember, Scott Ritter, along with a man named Blix, were the ones going into Iraq with their teams 
looking everywhere and can find zero weapons of mass destruction. And they came back and they told this to the State Department. They told it to the White House. They told it to the Defense Department, to Madeleine Albright. Nobody wanted to hear that because they already had their agenda. They were going into Iraq, Syria, and other countries, no matter what anyone wanted. So it was all pretense to get us in there. What for what? Well, yes. But he was the one who stood up. He would not back down. And he told us the truth. So he's been on the side of truth all along. Here is his perspective. You could agree or disagree with any part of this. But here's what he says is going on now. And what is the likely outcome? Scott Ritter. Again, uh, I'm Scott Ritter, sitting in for George Galloway. This is the mother of all talk shows. Thank you very much for uh, joining us. Um, Right now in Gaza, there's a humanitarian disaster unfolding. It's been unfolding ever since the current conflict between Israel and Hamas broke out. But let's be honest, it's been unfolding for 75 years. 75 years since Israel declared its independence and began what is now known as the Nakba, the catastrophe on the Palestinian people, stealing their homes, stealing their land, murdering their men, and driving the survivors into an exile. In the case of Gaza, this exile has put them into what amounts to an open-air concentration camp, a giant prison of humanity where every aspect of the life of these Palestinian refugees is, is controlled and dominated by Israel. You know, when we talk about what happened on October 7th, we can, we can reflect on the horror of the innocent civilians who got caught up in this, Israeli and Palestinian alike. Let there be no doubt there were innocent Israelis who were killed as a result of the Hamas attack. Um, at least we have the intellectual honesty, uh, the integrity to recognize them as innocent. Unlike the Israeli chief of staff, who has said there are no innocent civilians in Gaza. You know, this reflects the approach Israel has taken towards the population of Gaza, indeed towards the Palestinian population as a whole. They don't treat them as humans. They don't treat them the way humanity should treat humanity. They treat them as something less. They treat them as animals to be ushered here, there, uh, to be fed one day, not fed the next, to be left out in the cold one day, maybe bring them in uh, the next. Um, that's not how human beings treat human beings. And one has to wonder why it's taken Hamas this long to try and bring this issue to a head. Yes, Hamas has carried out terrorist acts, or if you're on the Palestinian cause, acts of resistance doesn't matter what label you put on it. You know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. We, we know how that works. But again, let's look at it from the viewpoint of the Israelis for a second. David Ben-Gurion, the founding father of Israel, Israel's first president, said that the Arabs and the Israelis, the Arabs would be idiots to make treaties and agreements with Israel because Israel has stolen their land. Israel has occupied their land. Israel has brutalized them. And he understands the source of the Palestinian angst, anxiety, anger. But he says it's okay because this is God's will. 
that the Holy Land is God's gift to the Jewish people, and it's just a tragedy that the Palestinians got caught in the middle. Moshe Dayan issuing a eulogy to an Israeli settler named Roy Rutenberg in 1956. Roy Rutenberg was killed in a kibbutz outside of Gaza by angry Palestinians who were imprisoned in Gaza. He said, we don't look to the Palestinians uh, and blame them. The blame is not theirs. They are in this prison looking out at us with hate-filled eyes because we have stolen their lands. We have occupied the lands. We are tilling the lands that their father tilled. They hate us, and we understand that they hate us. We need to blame ourselves, blame our own. Why? Because we forgot, he said, that in doing what we have done, in seeking our destiny, we forgot that we must continuously hold the sword in our hand that we can never forget that as we till the soil, we must also take notion of the need to repel the anger coming from Gaza, that the weight of Gaza is on our collective shoulders. What does he mean by that, the weight of Gaza? The weight of two million Palestinian human beings. These aren't animals. This is not a statistic. These are human lives. They matter. And yet, for decades, the world has not acted as if they do matter because we have given Israel a clean bill of health to do whatever it wants when it comes to resolving the Palestinian problem with no regard to the humanity, the dignity of the Palestinian people. Israel has implemented a policy. The English language, it's, it's mowing the grass. Dahiwa is the, the policy that the Israelis have put on it. Mowing the grass, what does that mean? It sounds nice. It sounds copacetic, mowing the grass. It means mowing the people, mowing the Palestinian people, mowing the children of Palestine, mowing the women of China. And when I say mow, I mean kill. I mean murdering them, knocking them down like, a, like, like you would grass at harvest, mowing the grass. It's Israel's policy of disproportionate force. It's Israel's policy of deliberately targeting civilian populations to crush the will to resist. It is, by definition, a war crime. You are not allowed to deliberately target civilian populations. International humanitarian law has made this clear. And yet Israel not only does it, but acknowledges it as its official policy, and the world is silent. The world is silent. Nobody speaks out about this. Nobody has spoken out about it. It's allowed to happen because that's the way it is. You see, in order to accept Israel in the family of nations, you have to accept the principles of Zionism, political Zionism. You have to accept the notion that Israel and the Israelis it's an exceptional nation populated by an exceptional people, that the normal rules and regulations don't apply to them, that because they are God's chosen people, they are allowed to do unto others no matter what, and they will not allow others to do unto them. That calculus has changed. What Hamas did on October 7th is said, no, that game is over. That time is over. There, Israel will no longer be able to rest in peace, that the Palestinian people, through the resistance that is personified by Hamas, are rising up, 
And now what we see through the sacrifice of the Palestinian people who are paying a price because Israel is implementing its mowing of the grass as we speak. You know, a hospital was bombed. A lot of finger pointing going on. Who done it? Was it an Israeli bomb? Was it a, a, a rocket from the Islamic Jihad organization? We don't know. I mean, I think the uh, circumstantial evidence right now points to this being an Israeli action. They acknowledge that they bombed. I mean, this is, so they say, we didn't bomb the hospital. We did bomb the garage. Well, if you take a look where the bodies are, whatever hit that hospital didn't hit the main hospital. It hit a parking lot, the garage, where the refugees were packed in because they had nowhere else to go, where the injured were packed in because the hospital was full. This mass of humanity, these Palestinian civilians, these innocent people were packed into the garage of the hospital. And Israel acknowledges, yeah, we, we may have done that. So their whole story about uh, a rocket flying air is a lie, is a lie. But it doesn't matter who did it. Let me tell you why. Because in the hours leading up to the hospital being attacked, Israel was bombing Gaza. Israel was killing innocent Palestinian civilians. And in the hours that transpired after the hospital attack, Israel was bombing Gaza. Israel was murdering Palestinian civilians. Does it really matter in the grand scheme of things if Israel on this one occasion was responsible? No, it doesn't. Israel doesn't get a clean bill of health because they say, oops, this wasn't us. It was them. First of all, we don't know that. But let's say it was an errant rocket. That doesn't make anything Israel's doing right. It is still collective punishment. Those people wouldn't have been in the parking lot of the hospital had Israel not initiated a war crime, this illegal bombing of the civilians of Gaza, this collective punishment that Israel does, this mowing of the grass, this slaughter of the innocents. Nobody would have been in that parking lot had Israel not done that. So, I'm sorry, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm sorry, Joe Biden. I'm sorry, Tony Blinken. I'm sorry, anybody out there who's trying to promulgate the official Israeli position that we didn't do it. It doesn't matter. You are guilty and you're being judged by the world as you should be. A war criminal enterprise known as the state of Israel and its day is done. We have populations rising in the street. We have a Palestinian population courageously suffering whatever abuses the Israeli government, the Israeli military puts at it. We have a collective resistance starting to coagulate around the cause of the Palestinian people. But let me leave you with this. It's one thing when the blood of the Palestinian children lies fresh on the ground when you can see it, the redness of the blood because it still contains the oxygen from the arteries of the heart that pumped it through the now dead body. It's one thing when you can smell the iron in the air of the blood. You can smell the death and you can become enraged. But soon the blood dries. Soon the body stiffens. The corpse must be taken away to be buried. The blood is cleaned up. What then? Right now, the streets of cities around the world are filled with people rightfully, righteously 
stepping out and protesting against the crimes committed by Israel, the crimes that are supported by the United States. And these protests are just, and they need to continue, and they must continue, but they must continue after the bodies have been buried, after the blood is dried, after the stench of death has gone away. You must stay in the street. You must maintain the pressure, or otherwise Israel wins again. This isn't the first time Palestinians have died at the hands of Israel. It's not the first time people have protested in the streets. But over time, the protesters go home, the dead Palestinians are forgotten, and Israel remains unchanged, unbent, unyielding, continuing the crimes. The Israeli enterprise must be brought to an end. I am not advocating the violent overthrow of Israel. I am not advocating the murder of Israeli citizens. I'm advocating a political change in Israel where Zionism is no longer the theology that drives this nation, that Israelis no longer view themselves as exceptional people who are anointed by God to bring pain and suffering on the Palestinian people, on the Arab population of the world. It's time that Israel stands shoulder to shoulder with the rest of the international community as fellow human beings, treating others as they want to be treated. If Israel wants to live in security with its Arab neighbors, then it must ensure that the Arab neighbors can live in security with Israel. Israel should no longer be allowed to have this army that it currently possesses. There's no need for an army of the side. Israel can no longer be allowed to have nuclear weapons and hold the sword of nuclear annihilation over the heads of its Arab neighbors, indeed over the heads of the world. Israel must become part of the community of nations, and it can only do so side by side with the Palestinian people that have been given the right to form their own state with equal rights, with with all the privileges, all the dignity that Israel demands of itself, they must give it to the Palestinian people. We'll be discussing this and more on uh, on tonight's show. I look forward to, uh, to having this dialogue. Again, Scott Ritter, standing in for George Galloway, the mother of all talk shows. Again, these are things to consider. You can accept or reject, but understand something. We need peacemakers. We need for someone to say, we've done it for 75 years, and look at the outcome. And yet the American media will not look at the fact that one group of people for at least 56 years have been living in the largest outdoor prison in the world. They have no freedoms, none. They can't just go someplace. They can't start their life over and they're kept at the most minimal level of survival. And they're deprived of everything that the average American would consider essential to life. How can the media, how can so many people overlook that and say, whatever Israel does, it's okay with us. We support them. That's the Sean Hannity's, the Laura Ingram's, and other neocons. Back in a moment. Please stay with us. (laughs) 